Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Sebastian Hahn, Senior Principal Software Engineer and Ceph Storage Architect, and Travis Nielsen, Senior Principal Software Engineer, both at Red Hat. So Sebastian and Travis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what's going on with the Rook Storage Project? Yeah, hi, this is Travis. Glad to be with you today. Um, you know, working on what's happening with Rook today. Um, that, that's a big question. Uh, lots is going on. Well, and maybe I'll start with a little background first on what Rook is uh, and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so what Rook aims to do is really bring storage to Kubernetes in a way that's you know, natural to work with Kubernetes. And where we started, the storage platform we started with as well was Ceph. So we knew Ceph was a great storage platform and it was built long before Kubernetes ever existed. So Rook, where Rook started was we said, well, let's bring Ceph into Kubernetes. And yeah, the way we do that is with uh, an operator. So an operator works with Kubernetes CRDs or custom resource definitions to, um, yeah, to respond to what user's desired state is. So you want to deploy Ceph, so you tell, you create these custom resources that tell Rook how you want to deploy Ceph. And then the Rook operator is the component that goes and makes that happen. It automates the install and, and everything around getting Ceph running in the cluster. So it's worth the pausing here for a sec to really dig into the, this deeply for our audience, at least, at least beyond the cover. Mm -hmm. The a CRD is a is a object you configure. Let's say in generic sense, not just Kubernetes, but I want to describe a resource and how I'm going to attach the resource, etc. So it's it's uh it's a rich definition of how you're going to use a resource. And it's a Ceph concept, or is it Kubernetes? No, it's Kubernetes. Yeah, it's an extension to the Kubernetes API. When when there is something you want to define or when you want to see happening in Kubernetes, uh, and Kubernetes has no idea about that, can be a storage cluster, for example, then you can define a CRD that represents that cluster. And then on the other side, you have an operator that will respond to requests, uh, like instantiation of that CRD, then the operator will respond and then deploy a cluster, for example. And really think of the operator as uh, uh, you just take all of the operational expertise, and then you bring all of that into a software entity that will be responsible for deploying, maintaining, and just managing the entire life cycle of, of a software. In our case, it's a storage stuff. So Ray, if you think about, you know, the typical storage admin job, if I had, if I needed to attach a bunch of longs to a, let's go ancient, to a HPUX instance, and I wanted to replicate those lungs locally or within, you know, in, in some block level storage, a CRD would be the equivalent of defining that in whatever your OS or platform is. Uh, an operator 
automates that thing. So instead of having a, instead of ha- and it's an intelligent way to automate that thing. So instead of having an administrator go back and repetitively do the th- same thing over and over again, Kubernetes has this concept of an operator, which can intelligently do that repetitive task that can be software defined now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And does it take take the place of CSI or something like that, or is the CSI still in the in the in the environment as well? CSI is, is still in the environment as well. I'd say what the custom resource definition is the CRD. It's it's just really a way to extend the Kubernetes uh, resources that are built into Kubernetes because Kubernetes doesn't know or couldn't possibly create all possible types of resources or define them that people would want to use with Kubernetes. So they allow this plugin mechanism so you can de- you define your own types so that the concept of a CRD and sort of the the framework plug the framework for using the CRDs is built into Kubernetes but the actual definition and creation of those is defined by each project like Rook has its set of CRDs that define Ceph clusters and Ceph pools and all these different types of resources. So let's go back to where Rook begins and Ceph ends. I got because I mean, it seems like Rook is the over Uber administration software for the Ceph storage cluster that's operating in the Kubernetes pods. Is that how this way plays out? Yeah, think of Rook as the management plane for the storage platform, which is Ceph. And and I guess why this is needed is a really interesting um, rabbit hole to go down a, a bit because a lot of times us storage admins will look at something like a CSI driver and think, oh, okay, this CSI dr- uh, Dale provides a CSI driver for my VMAX array. The cluster can the cl- the pods in the cluster can see the underlying storage. What problem am I solving if I'm able to provide persistent block storage to a pod? And I think that's where I think you guys can help us really understand uh, the value of Rook from a Kubernetes perspective. Um, yeah, with CSI specifically, so CSI is a, a specific extension to Kubernetes for storage. Of course, so you can plug in your persistent volumes and mount them in, in your pods and all that. So you have CSI drivers that are implemented according to that CSI API. And so Rook actually installed a CSI driver for for working with Ceph volumes. Um, and so that, that's one aspect of Rook. But Rook is not a CSI driver. Rook installed the Ceph CSI driver. Um, and so CSI is a specific API is how I think of it for Kubernetes to work with the the storage volume. So what I'm teasing out here is I can have a Ceph provider outside of like my cluster. I can I can stand up a as you mentioned earlier in the introduction. Ceph has been around for long before Kubernetes. So I can have an existing set of Ceph resources, and I can have a CSI driver for that, and I can uh, connect. Uh, via the Ceph CSI driver to there, but that storage, by definition, sits out of, outside of Kubernetes. It's 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 not part of my cluster. So when my cluster my cluster fails, uh, or my storage fails, 
the I lose that connectivity to the storage. As I understand it, Rook solves a set of the it it helps me think of storage in the same way that I think of Kubernetes resources. So it effectively brings the Ceph cluster under the constraints and operational characteristics of a Kubernetes cluster. It it takes that Ceph cluster you were talking about, Keith, and brings it inside uh, Kubernetes. I guess is that is that what is going on here, gents? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. So your your storage becomes or your your Kubernetes becomes storage aware, aware, aware in my Dell Technologies example where we have our VMAX array and we're just CXI driver. If there's, if there's, if I want to move my workloads, I can move my workloads, but what about that persistent storage layer and that connectivity to the underlying storage? The CSI driver doesn't magically make the pods, the new pods connect to the old, something has to orchestrate all of that new connectivity and the movement of the physical data plane to a new set of plot pot. CSI does exactly that. And I think that's and that's where you guys can help me out because this, this is where my kind of knowledge is failing because I'm not a Kubernetes guy. I know enough to be dangerous. The uh the uh w the as I think of like traditional Ceph and traditional Ceph storage providers or uh NFS providers because Rook mo works more than just uh Ceph. As I think about that, what uh, and I think about the storage coming under Kubernetes control, what are the benefits over just CSI drivers to a traditional uh, external resources? What's the distinction that bringing Ceph underneath the Kubernetes cluster versus having Ceph outside the Kubernetes cluster does for container apps, let's call it, you know? You're just adding the management layer if you have Rook... Uh, deploying Ceph inside Kubernetes. That's what you get essentially. Versus if you treat an existing external Ceph cluster as external, uh, then you're more into this consumer relationship than managing. You're not managing anything at this point. And Rook is only responsible for bringing the connectivity of that external cluster onto Kubernetes and then pass it down to CSI so that you can provide persistent storage to your applications. But, but by having that that Ceph cluster inside of Kubernetes pods, let's say, what what are the advantages of, of doing that versus having the Ceph cluster sitting outside? You're saying both can be Rook managed or Rook um, connected, I'll call it. Yeah, so when it's inside Kubernetes, then you get, let's say, dynamic response over failures, for example. So if one of the components of Ceph fails, then it can be immediately rescheduled onto another host and you can also do things like replica sets, for example, when you can decide, I want this um, particular uh, interface of Ceph uh, running multiple times. Uh, because Ceph, we, we haven't really dived into what Ceph is and what it does and how the, the storage interface is structured, but uh, essentially Ceph provides three methods to interact, to interact with storage. So three storage interfaces, object, block, and file system. Uh, and you, you could decide that you want, and essentially the object piece is really similar to OpenStack Swift or Amazon S3, which is uh, API compatible. It is really compliant with this, with, with this API. And these are, these are actually taking the form of gateways, as we call them. And you could decide, okay, run three instances of all of those gateways um, and aggregate all of them through uh, the service endpoint. 
in Kubernetes. Uh, and if the scale goes up, then you can dynamically add more and also scale down to where you where you were before. So it's more responsiveness over scaling up and scaling down, as well as also responding to failures. If one of the critical components of Ceph, for instance, the one maintaining the quorum, the monitors, is failing, then we can fail over and reestablish the quorum. That's what we one of the things we get from running in Kubernetes. So, I mean, an, an advantage of Kubernetes, obviously, is the auto-scaling kinds of things and auto-high-availability um, restarted containers that fail and stuff like that. But now you have that sort of capability for the storage as well as the containerized application. What about the physical disks and stuff that's sitting behind some Ceph node someplace or Ceph pod or Ceph container? I'm not exactly certain what the right term is. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, uh, it depends on which environment you're deploying. I mean, it, there is no magic. If you run on bare metal, then the disk is going to stick on the machine. The, the disk is going to stick on the host. If you run on more dynamic environments, such as cloud environments, like Amazon or Azure, for instance, then the storage becomes portable because essentially there are VMs where you have attached block devices onto. So if that fails, then you can move it onto another virtual machine and uh, yeah, if one machine fails, one VM fails, then the storage, uh, let's say an EBS volume, will be rescheduled onto another VM, and then the step cluster is uh, being being healthy again. So let, let's, I really love where we're going with this conversation. And I think, again, as we get into the nuances where we see the difference between Ceph external and Ceph internal to a rook being provided by the rook uh, operators so if i wanted to build a highly scalable or highly redundant let's let's focus on redundancy on, on highly redundant solution i can build it with either model i think the question becomes that of a operations management plane if i do it with ceph external then i have to as a either operator or developer, I have to glue together the things, the automation for when failure happens. The the reconnection, the I you know, the the visibility into the app to see that the that either the pod or the storage is down. Uh uh Kubernetes tells me whether or not the pod is down. But in order to provide that re, uh replication, redundancy, etc., I have to build that myself when I'm consuming, I have to build that automation myself when I'm consuming it via Ceph external. There's some tools out there that'll, that'll help me do it. But what Rook says is basically your workload and your, when I define my workload and my storage, I can define it in a single set of YAML or whatever. And Kubernetes manages the whole thing for me with less with next less manual thought on my end to make that work. Is that correct? It yes, is. That's right. yeah, and that's where the work project again was born really was Ceph management requires generally that, I mean, you hire a Ceph specialist who knows how to deploy and upgrade and maintain, handle the failure scenarios. You need someone who really would understand Ceph deeply. So what Rook does is it, it helps and abstract that or remove some of that complexity. And so then you can just define, well, how do you want Ceph to run? How many Ceph mods do you want? Um, tell us where you want the OSDs to run and we'll just make it happen. And then, oh, if you want to upgrade to a new version of Ceph, well, just tell us what version of, that you want. 
and will go sequentially and safely upgrade all of the pods in the succession. So you don't have to worry about how Ceph upgrades work. And again, managing Ceph um, is Rook's job, or the Rook operator's job, to, so that you don't have to worry so much about the Ceph internals. Yeah. Do you see a lot of, uh, I don't know, implementations of Rook Ceph sitting in, in, in public cloud environments, or is it more bare metal or or obviously a combination of both. You mentioned that public cloud has some interesting characteristics with respect to uh, disk uh, placement, I guess, or disk uh, floating connectivity. Yeah, yeah. It's really bringing even more high availability to the storage when you deploy that because the cloud provider is going to guarantee you uh, X9s, I guess, for that storage. But if you put on to... Uh, and like an environment, if you put Ceph on it, then you're just extending that because you will be replicating data also on top of those block devices, which hopefully are already uh, underneath replicated as well, but you're just bringing more redundancy to the platform and more availability in general. Right, and again, when Rook started, I thought, well, why would anybody ever want to run Rook in the cloud? You've got the cloud storage solutions. So if, when it was initially created, it's like, let's target bare metal, your own data center type of scenarios. But what we really found is there there are some common scenarios to run in the cloud, which is, for example, limitations of the cloud providers. Like you can only have a certain number of um, PVs per node. or So you quickly run, I think it's like 32, and I forget how many exactly in, um, in some environments, but you can have like, there's, practically limitless uh, number of PVs for Ceph, like thousands, or I've seen thousands in testing at least. So the other, yeah, the other thing that kind of this crossed the boundary of, you know, obviously containers and Kubernetes was kind of designed around a stateless uh, computations, I'll call it. But, uh, you know, we're bringing Ceph and, and Rook and Per, persistent volumes. All of a sudden, now we have stateful containers. Are you seeing a, a, a big adoption of stateful applications and stateful containers in Kubernetes deployments? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I guess you wouldn't need Rook without it, I suppose. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, that's why people use Rook because at the end of the day, how can you build an application that doesn't need some state or storage, right? Uh, you know, unless it's even the simplest website is backed by some storage. Yeah, but typically those things are sort of sitting outside the Kubernetes operational environment, right? I mean, it's sitting like a database server or something like that sitting outside. So Ray, I think you're hitting a, a key point of what Rook and is solving is this, you know, concept. We need persistence. And the persistence that we need is not only in database storage, but we need some type of file system persistence or data persistence that for unstructured data across multiple pods. Like the pods, the the processes can be anywhere. We don't really care for that, but data has gravity and we have to sometimes move the data with the gravity. I mean with the with the workload. And once we've once we ran into that architectural problem, well, the question is, how do we solve it? Do we build the, do operators build the capabilities within Kubernetes to be data aware? Or do you build it outside of Kubernetes and then kind of have a dotted line relationship between the two? And I think Rook solves that or answers that question in an opinionated way to say that, well, 
you make Kubernetes uh, aware, we, you st we still don't want to treat the process or, or the control plane. And I think this is a control plane question. We don't want to treat the data control plane, plane as a pet. It's still a cattle. If the data control plane dies, we still want to move the entire application, including the data, to another set of pods or resources. And I think that's what Rook enables. I think there's a there's an isolation here between Ceph and Rook that's 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 important to understand. I mean, I, I see Rook as being the one that deploys uh, the Ceph cluster. I see Rook being the one that's sort of monitoring uh, the the Ceph cluster and Ceph operations and stuff. But you know, the 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 containers are using persistent volumes through the CSI to talk directly to Ceph that's sitting on the cluster. Simple is isn't that how this works? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Because and that was, you know, one of our core architecture principles is the data path only goes from your application to Ceph, and Rook is not in that data path. Rook's only at the, the management layer, so we're not slowing anything down. It's just you get the stability of, you know, Ceph has been around for a long time. You want storage that's that's stable and durable and all that. Right, right. And you mentioned lifecycle management, so. I have no idea how you upgrade a Ceph cluster that's external to this world, but um, you're you're providing some capabilities within Rook to, I don't know, go from version X to version Y in Ceph. Yeah, that's why you you don't really have to know how to upgrade a Ceph cluster to upgrade one when you use Rook, because the only thing you have to do essentially is just tell us which version you want, and we will just go ahead and kick off the upgrade. So the entire logic is again baked in. Um, the operator, and and the operator, the Rook operator that's running in in, in in the Kubernetes Kubernetes cluster someplace, as containers, no doubt. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So I guess the the part of the clarification I need as well is you know I watched the video. I think Ceph is obviously the most mature uh, presentation protocol for Rook. Are there other supported underlays like NFS or uh, block storage directly outside of what's provided via Ceph. So if I wanted to do use Rook to present NFS instead of Ceph, well, you can you can do it through Ceph actually. So it's always through Ceph. Ceph is the primary presentation pro, uh, uh, or management plane technology that we're using. Uh, data. Uh, Yes. Well, data yeah. technology, <laughs> data gateway. I, I'm not sure exactly what the terms are, but so you're saying if you wish to have a, a standard NFS box or a NAS box uh, being serviced in this Kubernetes cluster, you could do this through Ceph file or something like that. Well, Ceph has an interface to re-export with NFS. So yes. I see. As far as, uh, do you have the same sort of export for, uh, does Ceph also support object export like that, or does it have to be maintained within the Ceph storage functionality? Yeah, could you could could you have some object storage endpoint beyond, let's say you wanted to use Amazon S3 and, and you're running in this, uh, you know, Amazon, you're running this this Kubernetes cluster in in Amazon EKS or something like that. Um, could you use physical S3 sub storage, or would you have to use EBS kinds of volumes? Yeah, we, Rook always consumes EBS block volumes, but then Ceph can turn around and expose the S3 end, endpoint from that. 
So if you want an AWS S3 endpoint, then you would just go straight to AWS S3. So I, I guess the, the challenge is, and I guess, and it's fine if it doesn't solve this problem. The the Let's say that I have the problem that S3 is external object to I me, mean, external storage to my Kubernetes cluster. So I have all of the same challenges of, you know, accessing any CSI provider when it's outside of the control plane of Kubernetes. And I want to solve the problem of making my application or my cluster data aware. But I also want to use the power of S3 replication. You know, I don't want to uh, replicate via, I don't, I don't want to have a, a layer of abstraction on top of S3. I want to replicate anywhere, but I want to orchestrate the movement of the data <clears throat> at the cluster level the or, or the attachment of the data at the cluster level. Rook does not do that. If you want that capability, you have to use Ceph. Rook is only orchestrating the Ceph storage. Ceph does really a lot of things. Uh, for instance, you were mentioning about S3. Uh, Ceph has an interface to consume objects, just like you were consuming them through S3. So uh, it has gateways which are S3 compliance. So essentially, we're always playing catch up with the whatever comes next into uh, S3 spec, but. Ceph has gateways that you can access through the S3 protocol, and you can also set this up in a multi-site fashion. So you can have geographically distributed clusters that all that interact with each other, uh, and, and just replicate data across across regions. For instance, this is not like this is possible with Rook to a certain to a certain extent, uh, but this requires like overall uh, like higher level orchestration. Uh, for this, ideally, we would need to have something like Kubernetes Federation, which we don't have yet, um, so that you would really orchestrate um, workloads uh, between regions. Uh, but right now, we don't really have this. But out of the box, Ceph, Rook, and with a little bit of extra configuration, you could set up uh, multi-site gateways uh, pretty easily. Uh, interesting for the data alone, and you could potentially do some disaster recovery things at at the other regions if you wish to, to fire that sort of thing up there and that sort of stuff. Huh. So we mentioned lifecycle, we mentioned configuration, and we mentioned monitoring. Are there other capabilities of Rook with respect to the Ceph cluster that that we should know about? Uh, access methods, maybe. Uh, we haven't really discussed that uh, through CSI. So what would that be, Sebastian? So, uh, as I said, Ceph is really capable of doing many things. Uh, and he, it is really great uh, when it comes to exposing storage through different interfaces. So it can be blog, file system, and object. Uh, within the CSI spec, it's always block-oriented. So it's not object. So what you're consuming is always a raw block device or a block device with a file system on top of it, which you can decide which one you want. And then you have different ways as an application to consume that storage. So you can say, um, and that's what we call access methods, essentially, um, where you can specify, I want that block device to be mapped uh, slash attached, if you want, to multiple applications at the same time. And they will all be writing and reading at the same time, too. So it's a... I mean, you use this for something like a file system, for instance, that would be supported across a number of containers and stuff like that, or, or utilized by a number of containers. 
that's right. If you have an application that scales, um, like it's let's say you have as replica three, it runs three times, but it has to access the same data store always. And with Ceph, you could tell, okay, use the same PV, but attach it three times onto different containers, and they will all share the same store, and they will be able to read and write from that storage too. This is the most advanced, I think, uh, that people might be looking at. Uh, you can do this with block as well, for, if you want. Uh, we can do this with our system, of course. So if I was to do like a, a database server under under Kubernetes uh, and, and I wanted to use Rook, Ceph and stuff like that, I mean, this guy uh, could potentially have multiple pods running to scale the database as it requires. And, and then behind it, either would, I guess would be block storage rather than file storage. But let's say it had file storage behind it. Then in this situation, multiple pods could be accessing that persistent volume that, that are supporting this database server in this Kubernetes cluster. So yes and yes, but it's a, a bit over-optimistic, I think, because uh, doing databases operations over distributed file systems is, I mean, it is always super heavy in terms of metadata. Uh, so it, it, I guess, it, yeah, it, it is possible to... But nobody would seriously consider this suicidal method. I guess it depends. I mean, it depends on the workload. It depends on the, how heavy the workload is and, and uh, how your rights are. But I mean, practically speaking, technically speaking, it works, but then would you want to do it is a different question. Uh, you might be uh, better looking at distributed databases instead. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a valid example. Just trying to put a little warning here. <laughs> There's a clear performance cost to do using the shared file system. So probably databases, yeah, you'd want the distributed database instead of the distributed file system. So they would probably use a block, block storage uh, option under this configuration, uh, but that would work as well in this case. Uh, the block storage volume could be shared across a number of uh, pods running the database server. Itself. There is a downside to this. Uh, I mean, in that case, you wouldn't map the same block device multiple times. Uh, it will be a one-to-one. -one, it will be a one-to-one -one relationship, and then you might have shards, yeah, distributed. But then the the database will do the coordination. Because if you map multiple block devices onto the same machine, then the only the only thing that you should do is just mount that file system as read only. I have a single writer and multiple readers. Uh, if you have multiple writers, then you're just corrupting everything. Yeah, unless there's some sort of synchronization across the writers and stuff. Yeah, well, you have to use a clustered file system, uh, like uh, for, uh, like ancient <laughs> clustered file systems, I guess. Uh, like that they don't. Well, the, the VMFS. This is what VMFS does, but it's you know proprietary to VMware's. Yeah, they have GFS and the old like OCFS2 stuff. Yeah, Virtos and all this stuff. There are plenty of cluster file systems that have existed over time. And, and VMFS is the current one that uh, VMware is using for much of their enterprise apps and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does this fit into like a CI, CD, DevOps kind of situation? Can you, can you roll out Rook? changes um you know go from rook version 10 to look rook version 11 i don't know what the versions are and stuff like that automatically or is that something outside of this well you could go get ups yeah for sure yeah we've definitely seen people doing that uh, with cicd and you know as far as upgrading rook itself you know the the upgrade is usually just well update our crds the you know those core definitions 
update the the rollback access control, the RBAC, which is just sometimes the privileges change as far as what Rook needs. And then and then you update the operator and then the operator automates everything after that. Yeah, so I, I, will, I would expect this just enables the, the technology enables the approach. If your approach is to do rolling updates, the technology is there from, let's say that step one is to update the Ceph cluster and the components of that. You can schedule Rook to do that, or let's say step one is to update Rook. The, and you have, you know, the technology is there. You, you guys have kind of completely embraced or you're subjective to the uh, approach to managing Kubernetes in general. This just integrates with your whatever operational approach you've adopted. That's right. And and it really is, I mean, to the Kubernetes admin, it, Rook should look like any other application that they're already, they already need automation for in the cluster it's just it's just another app so what's the next like what are the big uh areas of interest the community would like to take rook to like what what what's in the hopper i backup the disaster recovery synchronous replication you know these are sort of enterprise kinds of situations right i mean does the system support uh, a backup solution or how would that play out in this environment is it a ceph issue or is it a rook issue i don't know yeah, well, DR is definitely one area, of, well, probably the biggest area of focus we have right now because it is a it's a complex um, architectural problem. Right? How do you really support disaster recovery? Where's the automation and where's the the boundary between that manual trigger that says yes, we do need the admin to decide when to to fail over. Yeah, and I think there are two things, right, Travis? Uh, something you really worked on extensively uh, is. Uh, like stretched clusters, because uh, before going DR, we have to determine whether the cluster can be stretched across two locations, because that is actually the ideal. When you do a stretch cluster, then you get some sort of a DR for free, right? You don't really have to do uh, much. If you're doing synchronous replication across a stretch cluster and things of that nature, or or they all have access to the same servers, or yeah, you know, it depends on what you're doing, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, for that stretch scenario, really, we're talking about a, still a single Kubernetes cluster, so the latency still can't be too high. But some people have, if you have two data centers that are, you know, geographically close enough, and then you have uh, basically we need a third tiebreaker node somewhere between the two data centers, then, yeah, then you can have that replication. You call that the witness node or something like that. Yeah, yeah. the arbiter, you call it. So let's talk about observability and visibility from a uh, application pod orchestration perspective. Does Is there any either roadmap or existing features that allow operators to select uh, Ceph clusters based on attributes? I guess the first question, is there going to be multiple Ceph clusters in this Kubernetes environment, or is it just one? You can have as many as you want, but typically you have, I mean, well, typically you have one, uh, but yeah, it just depends on how you want to. So I guess that, I guess that, I guess, Ray, you're asking a little bit better question than I am, which is we're storage guys. We like speeds and feeds. The not not all not all underlying storage is the same. Sometimes I need cheap and deep uh, storage. Sometimes I need uh, super fast storage. And is the delineation a separate Ceph cl uh, 
cluster? Is it the same cluster with different storage pools? Like how do I how do I give my developers the choice they need? So I got some database that needs, you know, real fast block storage. And I've got some machine language solution that needs real sequential storage. And I've got some, I don't know, uh, data analytics. Well, it is, uh, I think it's uh, one of the really, it's one of the goodness of, of Ceph, honestly, is that uh, with Ceph, you don't need to have multiple clusters to be in where each will be dedicated to a certain purpose. Like, oh, this one is fast storage. This one is archive. This one is only file. This one is only block. No, no, you can manage all of that through a single subcluster, and you can really isolate uh, pools through like you can build a, a logical reference of your architectural platform. Like how many servers do you have? What type of disks are in the, in those servers? And you can divide that up and expose that particular story. So you can say, okay, the set of machine will be block fast block storage oriented, and then it will be exposed through a pool that will know, okay, I, I have those like these pool of machines available, and then I, I I'm exposing and I'm serving storage uh, in that matter. Then through CSI, I can expose multiple pools with multiple providers through storage classes. And then the storage classes will say, okay, this is fast storage, uh, go with it. This is archiving intended and then go with it. And this, this is how the developers will determine the type of storage they, they, they should consume. So on the container YAML file, for instance, they would say, I, I want fast storage or I want this storage pool and, it would, and, and Ceph would automatically assign it to that. If you if you give it the right hardware, yes. <laughs> yeah. So from the application's perspective, yeah, the application requests storage from the storage class, and you'd have to define a storage class that corresponds to the Ceph pool. And then if you've configured Ceph properly, then it and and, and Rook does that all for me, right? Right. No shit. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. Rook won't read. Rook won't read your mind for how to set it up. But <laughs> so once once I have the Ceph defined storage pools, and Rook will provide the storage class and 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 the linkage between the two and all that stuff. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So in practical terms, if I have a, if I'm doing all NV, uh, NVMe storage in uh, EBC. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, EBS, then I can assign that ultra fast if I'm doing SATA at one level that's, you know, fast. And then if I'm doing, if Amazon even has spinning disk anymore, if I'm doing spinning disk, I can put that as slow. I can define that as the Rook administrator. I can, you guys are making that easier for me to define that within Ceph. So I don't need a Ceph expert to do that definition for me. Right, especially if you run on the cloud with Amazon, then you would know that this particular type of provider is bringing you NVMEs. So you tell Ceph, okay, use that provider and give me nine OSDs, and then you get a pool, and then you create your own storage class that points to that pool, and then you pass that storage class down to your developers, and they can start consuming it. So yeah, we're really trying to make that easy for for you to consume. I don't recall. Does Ceph do uh, mirroring for data protection, or does it support something like RAID five or RAID six or something like that? Or, you know, what's a minimum number of Ceph nodes if such a thing exists? Yeah, internally, Ceph will replicate the data for you. To that we recommend by default three replicas. So it just mirrors the three, and and that's how it handles data protection if one of them goes down. 
Yeah. So in a Ceph cluster, you'd really want at least three nodes because of that number. You want at least node redundancy. So if you and and there's other means of mirroring. When I the mirroring term, at least in the Ceph world, is more about mirroring across clusters. So you can you know, you know take the Arbity image and mirror it to the other cluster. It's just a question of how many copies of the data are we talking about? Is there one copy and there's parity or is there multiple copies required? And in this case, you're saying multiple copies are required. Yeah, and then it's, it's, and then it's on what level of abstraction are you talking about? Are there multiple uh, copies? Because I could, I could, I could consume at the, at the provisioning level, I could consume a service, a provider that has by redundant, by by its nature, redundant copies, but they may not, uh, the, yeah, they may not expose them. So it's, 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 there's a lot of complexity in these abstractions. Yeah. But I would say that if you, if you get like underlying replication then you're, even if you don't know about it and you are somehow paying for it already, uh, and you're, you're also never really, really guaranteed that, uh, you will ever get your disk back if something fails. And that's that's why you really have to have Ceph on top of it to do the replication for you for of your of your data. Yeah, and Ceph also has different types of replication. You can tell it how many replicas, or you can tell it to use erasure coding, which then you know breaks it up and so erasure coding would be what I would consider a raid raid-like functionality, uh, which has data and parity and and how many parity groups might might you know determine how many storage nodes go down or how many disks can go down and still recover the data? So that well, that's good. But it's good for availability, and it's also it becomes a little bit cheaper if you want to reduce your cost per terabytes as well when you're when you're deploying. It's a bit more expensive when it comes to computation, of course. Yes, yes, or access itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what would be a typical sized Rook Ceph environment? I mean, is it is it something you'd consider deploying petabytes to, or is it something more of a terabytes nature? Um, it's it's. I'm just trying to get a, a handle on what the typical environment might look like. Yeah, the scale is definitely up to petabytes. That's what um, Rook or and Ceph Ceph was designed for at least petabytes. Uh, we do have. I'm trying to think. I know of at least one or two clusters that are at a petabyte or two in Rook, but there are, there are also so many people in the upstream community that we just never hear from. I wish I knew what the real size of clusters are. Yeah, but the most famous one are because they have been working with Ceph for a very long time, and they have really uh, they're part of the Ceph Foundation. They have been really advocating uh, their usage of Ceph as the CERN. Which is the data scientists from uh, Geneva, and I think there is also like an Australian, uh, the Monash University, and they they have a few petabytes there. But CERN has, I think they have, so they have multiple clusters, and no, everything I'm saying is public, by the way. So I think they have like between twenty to sixty petabytes clusters uh, on Ceph, and I'm sure there are much bigger clusters out there for the object use case uh, when they want to have. I mean, something like CERN and Monash is actually using Rook to manage those clusters under Kubernetes? Unfortunately, I think the answer is no. I mean, they have multiple clusters too, but I think they're experimenting. Yeah, and the cluster I was mentioning, and they've 
you know, commented publicly too is the University of California. That's um, yeah, they I think they've got a hundred or or low hundreds number of nodes type of thing with yeah, with the petapite or two supporting their universities across you know, across California. Well, this has been great. Um, so, Keith, any last questions for Sebastian or Travis? No, I think we've uh, picked their brain as much as my brain will handle. Like, uh, I've learned way more about Kubernetes than I ever wanted to learn about uh, Kubernetes yeah, today. Yeah. So, Sebastian or Travis, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Well, I think it was great for to have us uh, to have us. Uh, we could spend hours discussing this. Uh, I think you could tell that Travis and I are really passionate about what we do. But it has been great chatting with you guys for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd love to hear from anybody interested in Rook. You can join the Rook Slack. You know, go to rook.io. That's that's our main website and links to everything interesting there. There's you know KubeCon. You know, for the last few years, we've always had talks at KubeCon. You can go back and listen to, or the the KubeCon North America that's coming up in uh, mid October. We'll have a couple of talks there. So we'll look forward to to hearing more from people. All right. Well, this has been great, Sebastian and Travis. Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. And that's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. And bye, Sebastian and Travis. Okay. Bye. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out. 